Welcome to the O'Reilly Security Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Nash. In this episode, I talk with Chris Eng, Vice President of Research at Vericode, a software security as a service company. We discuss the social and technical factors that prevent more organizations from fixing obvious security flaws, how to make baking security in easier for developers, and the potential benefit of automation and runtime approaches for catching issues before they're out in the wild. I hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks for joining me, Chris. Super glad to have you on the show. Great to be here. So we'll start with the same thing I ask everyone, which is how did you get into the security business? Kind of funny. Uh, I actually started out as an electrical engineer and uh, by, by training, and I was working for the DOD at the time. And uh, a friend of mine just out of the blue said, hey, come over and uh, let me show you something. Let me let me teach you something. <laughs> that sounds yeah. like an interesting invitation. It sounds, yeah, it's like, how can you pass that up, right, in an afternoon? So you go over, and it's like, let me show you how to write a buffer overflow exploit. It's like, what's that? Well, you know, you can use this program in a way that was not intended, and suddenly you can become root on this Unix system. I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I would spend all my time in hardware and now there was this software thing that I didn't even know kind of existed. And you know, I was hooked. I was like, let's, let's do more of that. Uh, so by the time I got out of the uh, defense department, I joined a consultancy called At Stake, and I focused mostly on penetration testing. So I was doing all breaking of websites, commercial products, and just finding all the different ways to exploit and break them. And, and I spent the vast majority of, of that time, six years there, doing attack. Uh, before getting over to defense, where I where I am now, and, and now I work for a company called Veracode. Uh, we do software security uh, as a service, and our whole thing is like, let's help secure the world's software. Let's do this at scale and help find vulnerabilities in code before the bad guys do. And so it's been an interesting switch going from a very offense attacker focused mentality to uh, defense, which I've been doing now for the past uh, nine or 10 years. Right. I mean, you go from that, uh, you just need to find the one way in to uh, now I need to find all the ways everyone else can get in and I have to worry about that. That's right. Like defense is so much harder. And not to say that offense is, is easy. It's been getting really, really hard over the years is there's been a back and forth, you know, cat and mouse game between, say, the operating system providers and the attackers and, and they just keep one-upping each other. So it's fun and it's very challenging. But defense, you've just got this huge landscape that you're trying to protect and you've got big companies with all these properties and all the software they've built. It's a challenging, challenging problem. So you mentioned all these companies with all this software they've built. Um, and one thing I ran across when I was you know, sort of digging into to things that you've done um, and, and what Vericode is up to was a survey that you all ran. I mean, because, you, because you're doing you know, sort of software security as a service, you have a lot of data um, at, at your fingertips. And I wanted to talk a bit about this survey that you all ran um, because I thought it was really interesting to look at, uh, you know, sort of application security practices, you know, not just across, say, Google versus Facebook or across tech companies, but across right. a lot of industries, um, different sizes, b- different programming languages and stacks. Um, so I was hoping you could, you know, sort of divulge a bit of what you all found from that, some of the interesting yeah. bits. Yeah, let me. This is actually something that we do fairly periodically. Uh, ever since we've had a critical mass of data, basically, you know, and enough customers to really be able to comment on the state of software security as a whole, we've been putting out reports, um, you know, digging into different areas of that. And so our most recent one that we did was the sixth volume of that. And just a note on the data set: it actually is comprised of 
scan data, application scan data, so analyses that we've run for our customers across over 200,000 applications in an 18-month period. So there's a lot of data there. And so what we're able to do then is anonymize that, um, slice it however we want, right? Um, in, this, in this case, we looked specifically at different industries. We looked at programming languages. And, you know, anytime we do this, we can slice and dice the data a different way. We can ask questions and, you know, test hypotheses of what we think is going on out there against what actually is. So these sorts of studies are very rarely, they very, very rarely come out with a very positive spin, right? It's always like, wow, <laughs> yeah. things really Doom bad. Doom and gloom, here we go things again. Terrible. And like, it's mostly that. There's a little bit of, there's a little bit of good news kind of at the end. But when we first looked at, you know, who does best against industry standards, what we did was we compared six different industries against the OWASP top 10. So what we did was we said, all right, the first time you scan an application with us, how likely is it that you'll have at least one vulnerability in the OWASP top 10, which is the taxonomy that's used to most commonly to gauge, you know, the most severe vulnerabilities in web applications. And really, the difference between the best performing industry and the worst performing industry is not that great. So financial services uh, fails that OWASP top 10 test uh, 58% of the time. And government, which is the worst, fails at 76% of the time. Okay, so wait, 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 back up. 58% yeah. of the time failure rate is the good end? Yes. Okay. And keep in mind, that means that they just had one or more vulnerabilities in the OWASP top 10. So okay. they weren't completely clean. And this is just one way of kind of, you know, measuring this, right? Everybody else came in in between those marks. So manufacturing at 65%, technology at 68%. Everyone's kind of clustered in the middle there. And, you know, the takeaway from this is not really that like, wow, you know, financial services is 18% better than government. It's like, well, big yeah. deal. And you're still filling 58% of the time. So it's this, it's exactly what you just said is that the best performing industry sector is still failing three out of five times. The other, you know, as we drill into individual vulnerability categories and we look over time, it's just, um, it's a little depressing because we see that even the most common vulnerability that's used in breaches, so SQL injection, right. is not significantly coming down over time. When we go back and look at quarter over quarter, how it's doing, you know, if I go back about five years, SQL injection appears in about 30 to 35% of all the applications that we look at. And in the most recent quarter, we're down to 27%. So it is coming down, but it's coming down at such a slow pace that if you were to extrapolate that all the way to, you know, how far would you have to go into the future before that gets to zero? You're looking very, very far out. And that's not even taking into account new programming languages, new frameworks, different development um, styles, and, and that sort of thing. And this is actually, to make it even worse, this is one of the easiest vulnerabilities to eradicate, to fix right. from a coding standpoint, usually two or three lines of code. And, um, you know, so we're, so we're looking at trends and vulnerabilities also. So, uh, you know, this business, I mean, the recent kerfuffle about the DBIR aside and people's possible complaints about that, I mean, mm -hmm. the general sense that there are known vulnerabilities, very patchable things that have been out there for a long time that continue to not get fixed. I mean, we're hearing the same thing from you. What's your take on on why that is? I mean, is it the complexity of things that people have to deal with? Is it resources? Is it, you know, sort of software supply chain stuff? Like what's going on there that we know this is a thing and we can't seem to, as you know, industry-wide, really drive it down? 
Yeah, there are so many, so many answers to that. Um, the simplest one is just that software is complex and it's changing very rapidly. The way that typically in the past companies have gone about securing their applications is to kind of take their top tier of most important critical applications and put a lot of investment into protecting those and kind of leaving everything else by the wayside. A very, and, a very appealing wayside. <laughs> to, yeah, yeah to exactly. Attackers. And, you know, the attacker is going to say, oh, well, great. Well, maybe I don't need to go after the main, you know, flagship retail banking site. Maybe I'll just look for something on the side here that like they forgot about, but is still running some five-year-old version of something. And I can get in that way and then move within the, the network. The attacker is always going to look for the weakest link. And right. the thing that's many companies have started to realize over not even that that uh, long a period of time, the, the past few years even, is the importance of understanding uh, what they have, everything they have, because it's not about just protecting that top tier anymore. It's like at least getting to a minimum bar, a minimum level of minimum due care across your entire waterfront, your entire exposure, right? The problem there, the challenge there is that actually getting that list of everything I have is yeah. not something that most organizations have. Well, and if you're if you're really playing, especially in open source and and you know everybody else's APIs, I mean that's that whole supply chain is is pretty crazy. That's right. I mean, first you've got the the question of what are all the things that I've built in my company over the past you know number of years that we've been in business, right? Let's say a twenty year old company. What are all the web apps, internal applications, marketing sites that I've st stood up for some various reason that are all still connected to my company in some way and may have some information? And the second part of that, once I kind of figure out all the things I have, is what are those things made of, right? right. And that's where you get at the open source and supply chain angle. Is that nobody, oh, and God forbid you've gone for microservices, right? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Because that is that you're still your own code. Very hard to right. even know what's right. where. Like no one's writing software from scratch these days, and and they they never really have been over the over any sort of modern software development. But building software is kind of more like assembling software from ingredients these days. And you pull together a library for this, a library for that, and then by the way, your shiny new piece of software inherits all the security holes in those libraries also. And then over time, the more mature the product gets, people start to lose track of what went into it. Nobody keeps an inventory of those libraries. And then, you know, people don't upgrade libraries if they don't have a good reason to functionally. Right. So, you know, if you just kind of sit there and watch your product over time, it will get more and more and more vulnerable as additional vulnerabilities are discovered in the libraries that you use. So that's becoming a huge problem, or it's always been a, a huge problem, but it's getting a lot more visibility these days. And th that's a lot in part thanks to some of these high profile vulnerabilities that have come out, right? Like a heart bleed or a shell shock. Mm -hmm. Some of these cases where there's a vulnerability in a component that's like 15 years old and suddenly everybody is scrambling around saying, oh my God, how do I figure out all the places that I'm gonna be affected by this? And so that's um, something most orgs are scrambling to, yeah, I mean, there's um, there's no one person or body or anyone who owns security for open source, right? So that's right, and 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 just within a company, even it's just so decentralized that you know, I I had a conversation with a customer once at a, at a dinner that we were hosting, and um, there was a vulnerability that had come up recently in the Struts library, the Java library, mm -hmm. and it was a pretty severe vulnerability, and so. He was telling me how he had spent the past two to three months just kind of going around the organization from business unit to business unit, just trying to figure out, like, 
are, you know, is, is this team using this library? And if they are, are they using one of the vulnerable versions? Just trying to figure out where to attack it and how to prioritize had, you know, had taken several months. And this is for one vulnerability, right? This is, you know, this doesn't scale. And this is a large yeah. bank. Wow. Yeah, I mean, the, the systems we're building, we're building them intentionally to scale, but the people side, does, that doesn't scale, right? Right. And that's where this whole, um, that's where it, it's a really challenge, uh, challenging thing for security teams, for product security, for, for you know, internal security teams and companies is that, you know, we have to evolve from being um, sort of the department of no, the department that kind of holds things back and like makes you double check and triple check everything. I mean, we want a level of diligence and we want a level of due care around, you know, putting things out that are not insecure, obviously. But increasingly these days with the speed of software development, increasing the way that it is. So you look at, you know, going from waterfall to scrum to DevOps and, you know, whatever's next. Um, we're seeing an increased pressure to you know, innovate faster and iterate and respond rather than, you know, set up gates. And that's something that our industry, I'm going to say, is, is having trouble adapting to. It's, it's, it's sort of come on pretty quickly. There's some tension there. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can imagine if you're already having a hard time trying to understand how many, you know, different development groups in your company, if you especially work for a very large enterprise company, have this, this you know, this Java struts vulnerability. And then someone comes along and goes, hey, we're going to do agile. And you're just like, kill me now. Right. <laughs> like This right. does not sound like a good idea to then move faster when you can't even figure out what's going on. So, I mean, I think and you mentioned something in there that I think is the key of what I'm seeing, because, you know, sort of I come from the world of DevOps and, and, and another this other conference that I run, Velocity. You know, the, I think the real mind shift you mentioned was going from putting up gates to having better responses, essentially. Um, and, and that's the notion that you can't possibly know everything about, as you already said, you know, these complex systems that you're building. And so you're better off trying to figure out how to react as quickly as possible to what will happen. Um, that's sort of the notion of if you have an agile and a DevOps setup, you know, if you release code uh, five times a day, a hundred times a day, thousands of mm -hmm. times a day, that's a bit, a bit scary. But the flip side of that is when something does happen, you're able to deal with it a lot faster in, in theory. Right. In theory. I mean, if you if you're able to figure out that something is going on, which is right. uh, seems to be what's missing. And, and um, yeah, there's going to be some combination of bolstering your ability to detect and respond. And it, but it doesn't completely negate the need for actually, you know, having good hygiene during the development process. What's right. actually having to happen is that you're able, you have to make more things just happen automatically or be baked into tools and processes and, and not be asking developers to, you know, go through this checklist of five things that they have to do every time they check in a, um, a piece of code or whatever, like removing those barriers, right? So that you actually are able to do things during the development process that, you know, for example, the type of analysis that we do, it's, it's a, it's a heavyweight analysis. It, it, it goes very deep. It looks at kind of all the different, um, code paths and, you know, finds all the different ways that, that things can be exploited. That takes time. And you don't want to, like, you don't want to take that away. You don't want that to not be part of your software development process, but you have to figure out a way to augment that with things that are, you know, looking at smaller chunks, for example, uh, in addition to running sort of whole program analysis, maybe on a, on a 
on a periodic basis. And then you have to also look at, you know, what are you going to do to instrument the program to uh, be able to look for anomalies that are happening in production, that's that sort of thing. So it all kind of complements each other. And I don't think that, you know, we, we hear more about things that are happening on the right-hand side, the things that are happening in production, detection and response. But, you know, it, it it's all part of you know, an overall program that you got to be doing something kind of at, at every layer there. And for us, the, the focus, what we've seen a lot of is just finding ways to make that testing process during development invisible to developers. So how that's manifested for us is a lot of plugins, a lot of APIs, um, you know, even internally, the, the way that we test our own stuff, it just happens automatically. Somebody checks something in, Jenkins builds it, it automatically gets uploaded and scanned, bugs come back down into Jira, boom, like nobody has actually gone and had to click anything or, or remember to scan or anything like that, right? It just happens. And the most important part of that is that the security bugs just come down into the same system that the developers are already using for their functional bugs. Nobody's handing you a PDF and saying, go oh, read God. this the bug, right? It's all, it just, it's like, what do you do in, in the morning when you're a developer? You come in and like you check your email and then you check your, you check your ticket queue and mm -hmm. all your, your normal stories, your bugs, your security issues, they're all there. And um, you didn't have to do anything. And um, I'm, so I'm seeing a lot of our customers, especially the more, the ones with more mature programs, really ramp up the number of integrations and the, the types of integrations that they're using in order to remove those human touch points where somebody has to go and remember to do something. So, so that's I mean, going to factor into this whole DevOps thing. Yeah. Are those integrations vulnerabilities of their own in some way? Or has that not really been an issue as much? I mean, you're just in a way, you're like adding more, again, you're piling on more complexity, more integrations, right? Yeah, mostly there. We're just talking about, you know, an Eclipse plugin or a Visual yeah. Studio plugin to, to upload, you know, to, to send the code up or, a, um, sorry, a Jenkins plugin right. to, hey, when you build, when you do the nightly build or whatever, also um, upload the upload the thing for scanning, right? So it's just like not a lot of gotcha. extra moving parts. It's just finding ways to insert automation where you can to prevent a human from, from having to do that. Um, of course, there's a, you know, there's a long way to go here. You know, we want to be able to, you want to be able to give, like in an ideal world, you want to be able to give immediate feedback um, to a developer as soon as you know they've done something wrong. Because then you can fix it in the moment. You don't have to go back and kind of figure out, oh, what was that thing I was working on three days ago? Let me try and get back into that headspace and, you know, figure it out. No, like you want to, you want to give uh, as close as you can to when the code was written. And so that's what we're working towards. And that's what I think the industry will start working towards is um, finding ways to give them immediate feedback uh, in addition to the, the, deeper, um, the deeper analysis that, that you would do maybe on a nightly basis or weekly or whatever makes sense for the organization. But it's going to be tough. You... And what's, what's next after DevOps, right? Like, I, I don't <laughs> even know what's coming next, but like, we'll have to deal with that too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, what do you think about the sort of runtime application security stuff. I mean, where, where's your thinking on that versus uh, this the sort of more static kind of of application security? Yeah, I think it's going to be a very uh, important part of the of the overall program. Um, it gets you it gets you um, running inside the application. So as opposed to you know the the older technologies, the web application firewalls that are just kind of sitting out there on the network and trying to guess you know what's bad and what's not. Um, your runtime protection is going to be sitting inside the application server. It's going to be able to look at the um, the data coming in. It's going to 
try and identify attacks and then flag only in cases where the act the attacks actually are attacks. Um, right. Additionally, it's going to give the developers, the security team, whoever, a lot more visibility in in instrumentation of of those applications. So you'd be able to kind of ask more probing questions of kind of what's going on than you would with, you know, a WAF or, or, or with building a, you know, separate imp- instrumentation framework. I think it's going to be, uh, I think it's going to be very important um, going forward. It's just, it's such a nascent industry that you have a lot of players out there kind of dipping their toes in, but you also have really only the, the very early adopters deploying this sort of stuff. People are naturally going to be cautious about anything that's running in production and certainly anything that has the potential to block uh, activity, right? Because that's right. the whole idea. You see an attack, you block it. And But if it's not really attack and then your sales really go attack, down right. all day, right? Yeah. Right. You don't get to make that mistake very many times uh, as yeah. a product. And and that's where WAFs have historically gotten a bad rap. Um, they, they misfire. Yeah, and then what people end up doing is they start putting them in a passive mode. So instead of just blocking attacks, they're just logging attacks. Right. And, that, and then you're just ignoring uh, alerts all over again, right? Ignoring, right. Is that, anybody looking at those logs? Yeah. So um, it, it's any anytime you're doing something in production like that, that's going to be actively blocking, there's, you know, you got to turn that that dial way to one direction to be very conservative and, and be very um, cautious and confident before you, before you start to ratchet it up. But um, yeah, I think that visibility is going to be very, very important going forward. It's going to be it's going to be part of as we look at maturity models for product security and application security. It's going to become something that you know everyone's going to have at some point. So um, I was I was digging through your Twitter feed because that's what I do oh. before I interview people. <laughs> um, and and back at RSA, you retweeted um, Dan Glass. Um, uh, who was speaking there? Uh, he's also on our program committee. Yeah. Um. And and he said, you know, you need appsec programs, not appsec tools. And you retweeted that. And I have to poke at you a little bit because I mean, you do work for an appsec tool company, right? Ah, well. <laughs> we so, work for, I work for an appsec services company. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I mean, the thing about tools is that there's expertise required to use them. So if I give you a tool, that doesn't necessarily make you better at, at what you're trying to do, right? right. Um, the canonical case in security is um, you give a developer a dynamic web scanner, and then you ask them to configure it and run it and understand what it what happened and make all the fixes. And that basically almost never works because they don't have the background and expertise right. to understand what all those you know, configuration things mean. They don't know what the attacks are actually trying to do. Um, it's, just, it's just very, very complicated. The tool is a good way to find stuff. The, the way that we, the, the approach that we take here is that, yeah, we have a technology, we have a set of technologies, and we have services that we wrap around that. So, for example, when somebody starts using us, we don't just drop something on their, on their desk and say, here you go, um, call us back in a year when you need to renew. Right. We walk them through the process of how to use the service. We have program managers that actually work with the customers to set up kind of milestones, 30, 60, 90 day milestones. They help them understand what their goals are for the overall program, uh, help them customize reports and metrics for you know presentation to their whoever their audience is. We have a team of consultants that actually, so when you do a scan, you have a readout uh, you can you optionally can have a readout which gets you on the phone with one of these people and they walk the developers through what we found. They'll talk about remediation advice, kind of just explain things to them in a way that just like sitting there and clicking on a tool um, 
you know, wouldn't do. So, um, and that, that actually kind of ties to one of the, remember I said there was like one positive thing out of the, out of the, the report that we did. Oh, sweet. We're oh, going to get back one, to that. Awesome. One of those, yeah. One of those was that, you know, we looked at remediation rates because, you know, it doesn't matter if you have scanned everything that you own. If you're not actually fixing things, you haven't really made a dent, right? And so we looked at the impact of various things on um, on remediation rates. And we did find that for applications that did have a readout, that readout coaching call that I just described, uh, we found that the development team fixed uh, more than two and a half times more uh, flaws than teams that did not do a readout. So we see a definite correlation between, and this it doesn't, it's not mind-blowing, right? Of course, if you walk somebody through something and you explain things to them, they'll be more likely to fix it. But it was nice to see that backed up in the data. And so that was my one sort of positive thing that came out of, uh, out of the report, out, out of the gloom and doom. It's like, wow, look, um, this, this is working. And yeah. another stat that's not in the report, but I just like to talk about is that, you know, last year, 2015, uh, across our customer base, we detected about 10 million flaws and we can measure that 7 million of those were fixed over the course of the year. So like people that are does, that does getting feel a better, little bit better, right? Yeah. It's yeah. a hard problem. It's going to take a while, but like, um, we're, we're getting better and we have a tendency as an industry and as a profession to just focus on all the things that are going wrong. I mean, mm-hmm. that's sort of our job. We have to be good at that. But things are actually, uh, you know, people are, you know, getting better overall. And that's that's a good message. Well, you um, I, I swear we didn't plan this because you you just uh, you just served up my next thing on a platter for me, um, <laughs> which is you know, one of the things I'm trying to do with this podcast is is highlight all the different roles of people, you know, working on defensive security in, in some way or another. And, and tease those people out of the shadows, um, right, where successes are silent and everything is hidden um, and highlight those positive, um, you know, people or outcomes. And uh, and so the, the final question always on the podcast is what's your security superpower? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Oh, we were. Oh. I know I, you sh- it's been in Slack, and you had you. I know. About I, have, it by now. I, I forgot about it, and I didn't think I. Would, I didn't think you were going to put me on the spot. Oh, of course, crap. I'm going to do that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I don't have a good superpower. Um. Uh, Everybody has a good superpower. That's the point. I don't know invisibility. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do with that? I don't know. Um. God, I don't know. Uh, th- so see, it sounds you- like you're making the invisible visible. I would say that's your superpower. What we've tried to do, what I've tried to do here, uh, especially from a product security front, securing our own stuff, is I, I guess it comes down to some sort of um, communication thing. And this, this just doesn't sound like a superpower. But um, I've tried to work really hard to get into the minds of the developers and understand how they operate why they do the things they do and understand their motivations. One of the things that's really bugged me in the past is just the, you know, you, you hear all the time, oh, God, developers are so stupid. Like, why do they keep making these stupid mistakes? And, right. you know, we're not going to get anywhere if if there's this ongoing, you know, tension and lack of respect between departments, right? right. And so I've tried to really understand, um, you know, how are they being measured? What's What's making them tick? What are we really asking when we're asking someone to fix something? Um, and and it's, it's made a big difference in terms of how receptive dev teams have been to doing the things that we're, we're asking them to do, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know how to articulate that and, um, 
as a, you know, as a one or two word sort of thing, but um, I got it. I, I got it for I you. Kind of go. You're yeah. a, you're a, yeah, no, I got it. I got your superpower. You're a mind reader. A mind reader. Well, that certainly sounds much more impressive than, um, than what I said. So let's do that. <laughs> we'll go, we'll go with, with mind reader. Um, I, I think that's perfect. That's exactly what you, you said. You can get into the minds of these people and what makes them tick and how they work. And, um, and then there's the added, you know, sort of almost empath capacity to explain that to other people and to get them all to, you know, sort of understand their, the, what they have a shared goal, right? That's right. I wish it worked on, on people other than uh, developers and security people, though, because I'd like to be able to read more minds. Yeah, well, that's the problem with superpowers, though. Sometimes they are a little narrowly scoped. <laughs> oh, well, I'm going to work on that. <laughs> okay, that's fantastic. Thanks. Thanks so much for joining me today. This was a really great conversation. Yeah, it's great. Thanks. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Courtney Nash and Chris is at Chris Eng, C-H-R-I-S-E-N-G. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. <laughs>